0: It was a warm, humid evening outside the small town of Sharp, Texas. The young man dismounted from his horse and met up with his ranger captain for orders. The 22-year-old had just joined C Company, and he was anxious to prove himself to the many experienced men in his unit. They sat outside the old brothel in town. The man they were looking for had murdered two men and was now held up inside the brothel. The women were ordered out, and the ranger captain ordered the man to give himself up. When he refused, they opened fire. Bullets pinged off the siding and smashed every window on the front of the house. But the young man didn't fire. He covertly stepped around to the rear of the house and took up a good firing position overlooking the back windows. There was no sign of the man inside as the other rangers continued firing. But just then the young man saw a flutter of the curtain. A moment later, a shape resembling the muzzle of a pistol extruded through the gap in the curtains. Without a second thought, and in almost one single motion, the young man drew a bead on the shape, and fired once.
1: Virtuous Men a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Over the course of this season, we'll explore the lives of five men who each exemplified a crucial virtue of life with not just their words, but their actions. From these men, we hope you will learn that a life of virtue is something you can achieve, no matter the obstacle. Welcome to Episode 1, The Law and Order of Frank Hamer, Part 1, hosted by Jamie Adams, with expert insight from John Bosnecker, author of the book The Epic Life of Frank Hamer, The Man Who Killed Bonnie and Clyde.
0: A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him, as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's
1: virtue is Law and Order. Law and Order is the respect and obedience of the rule of law in society. This is something that is easily thought up and written down on paper, but is much harder to implement in the real world. It requires strength to counter lawlessness, and it requires a steady hand, cool temper, and a balanced view of judgment and compassion. The legends of great lawmen of history bring us back to the times of the old west, and to violent days of gangsters and bootleggers. One such legendary lawman was Frank Hamer, He lived through some of the most violent times in American history, yet he managed to quell some of the most notorious crime sprees during his 40 years in law enforcement. Many have called him the greatest American lawman of the 20th century. By exploring Hamer's life, we will seek to learn a lesson from the past, that without law and order, and those in place to enforce it, society is only one step away from anarchy. We're joined in this episode by author John Bossenecker, John is a former law enforcement officer and lawyer, and has always had a passion for frontier history. He has authored nine books about the lawmen and outlaws of the Old West, none more celebrated than his New York Times bestseller, The Epic Life of Frank Hamer.
0: Part 1. The Cowboy. Frank Hamer was a product of the Texas Hill Country. Born in 1884 in Fairview, Wilson County, to parents Franklin and Lou Emma, Frank grew up in a wild, largely lawless environment. The Texas of the mid to late 19th century was the scene of violent conflicts, first between settlers and the Apache and Comanche Indians, and then between the settlers themselves, when the natives had been driven from the land.
2: In the American West, you had too few women, as all guys know, as a general rule, if women are present, men tend to behave themselves. You know, sometimes they fight over the women, but in large measure, uh, especially mothers, sisters, daughters, family members, men won't go to brothels. They won't go to bars. They'd be humiliated to find out that their mother knew they were in a bordello. And when they came west in the frontier, those social constraints were left behind.
0: Texas was largely spared from Civil War battles within its boundaries, but Texans were not. Some 70,000 Texans fought for the Confederacy after state legislators voted for secession in early 1861. But not all were loyal to the Southern cause. Texas governor and hero of Texas independence from Mexico, Sam Houston, famously refused to sign the Articles of Secession and was promptly removed, dividing Texans from the outset of the war. After the Civil War, Texas became known for family feuds, as Northern and Southern sympathizers pitted themselves against each other for supremacy in the state. Even those who had fought side by side now battled it out, none more famous than the Suttons and the Taylors, whose feud lasted 30 years and left somewhere between 35 and 70 men dead. This was the world young Frank was born into. He inherited his father's quick wit, but managed to stay away from his heavy drinking habits. Frank looked up to his maternal grandfather, LJ Francis. When Frank was just a child, he would tell him stories about his adventures in the wild American frontier. Back in 1840, LJ and his group of traders were ambushed by Indians on their way from Texas to Mexico. He was shot in the head by an arrow, but managed to escape and went on to become a Presbyterian minister. Frank looked up to his grandfather and had a desire to follow in his footsteps and preach the word of God.
2: He had this extraordinary Uh, moral compass and uh, part of it has to be religious because of his influence from his grandfather and some of it is just the incidents that happened to him in his his boyhood.
0: The Hamers moved to Oxford Texas in 1894 when Frank was 10 and Frank spent his time helping his father in Franklin Smithy. As he grew older this work at the Anvil turned Frank into a very well-built young man with broad shoulders and powerful arms. At school, Frank was extremely intelligent. He developed a photographic memory, something that would lead him to his future career. Teachers would ask him where his work was when he'd answer an arithmetic problem. He'd simply reply that he didn't know how to work it out on paper, but could give the right answer. As a teenager, Frank learned the virtues of honor and respect. He learned that the Texas way was to never take an insult lying down, and that a man had to earn the respect of his peers. He developed a stand your ground attitude to confrontation and also developed into a dead shot. At the age of 16, his family moved to Regency, Texas. Frank met and started to work for a sharecropper by the name of Dan McSween.
2: Hamer and his younger brother were working as sharecroppers on the San Saba River, north of San Saba, Texas. Uh, Dan McSween was this ranch owner, he owned about 350 acres. McSween saw Hamer uh, practicing some target shooting and saw that he was an expert shot.
0: McSween asked him if he would like to earn an extra 150 dollars, a few months salary in the early 1900s. Frank jokingly responded, who do I have to kill? But McSween wasn't joking. He explained to Frank that he had an ongoing dispute with a local rancher and he wanted him dead. When Frank protested, McSween upped the rate to $200 and told Frank his plan. Hell no, Frank responded. I'm going to tell him what you've proposed. McSween threatened to kill Frank if he'd let the word out, but Frank was incensed, and that night Frank and his brother Harrison, who had overheard the whole exchange, rode to the rancher's house and informed him of McSween's plan. Two days later, Frank and Harrison were plying McSween's land when McSween approached and asked the two to get him some supplies. As Frank returned with a few cans of food, he dropped them and as he bent over to pick them up, McSween crouched, unseen by Frank, and aimed a double barrel shotgun at him. Harrison shouted a warning to Frank, and as McSween fired, Frank dove out of the way of the buckshot. The pair ran, but McSween aimed another volley at them and caught Frank in the back and in the side of the head. At this point, having fallen to the ground wounded, Frank drew his revolver and fired a couple of shots back, striking McSween. McSween retreated to the house, and the boys hid in a ravine until McSween disappeared on horseback to search for them. They made it back to their horse buggy and were helped by an African-American field hand who raced for a doctor and brought him to the Hamers' residence. This act of heroism saved Frank's life, and he wouldn't soon forget it. That colored man caused me to be living today. He would let her comment.
2: He was basically on death's doorstep and there was a black field hand present. The field hand loaded him into a buckboard, raced him into San Saba, where a doctor uh, managed to remove the buckshot and Hamer told his mother, I'm not going to die, I've been talking to the Lord and the Lord said, I'm not going to die.
0: Much of the buckshot remained in Frank's body for the rest of his life, and he commented that he'd rather have it in him than face the trouble of having them removed. This brush with death instilled two key attributes in him. It showed him that he could stand up to a bully, take a few bullets, and live to tell the tale, and it gave him a lifelong affinity for African Americans, something very rare in most Texans at the time. He would repay the debt he owed to this one black man, time and time again, in the future. McSween was never charged with Frank's attempted murder, and Frank and Harrison were sent to stay at the Ketchum Ranch for their own safety. The Ketchums were close friends of Frank's father, and owned 45,000 acres along the Pecos River. The two boys were soon helping out at the ranch, and settled into the cowboy lifestyle. While driving a remuda of horses to a ranch in San Angelo in 1903, Frank would have a life-defining, fork-in-the-road moment. One of the other wranglers told Frank and the other young men how easy it would be to rob a bank and take off to Mexico. Frank and the others were tempted, so tempted that they hatched a plan to rob a bank in San Angelo. They were about to head out when the foreman rode up to check on them and ordered them to get on the move again. This disturbance ended the plan before it got started.
2: All of a sudden the trail boss shows up and says, what are you lazy guys doing? Get this herd of cattle down to the railroad stockyards and hamer later said if that hadn't happened lord only knows what how my life would have gone and he said also it wasn't the money he wanted it was the excitement and i think with uh, his ranger career it was a way to have an exciting career where you're on the right side
0: many lawmen choose the better of two paths in life a life as a law enforcer or a life as a lawbreaker It was the adventure and not the money that appealed to me. Had I not gone with the law, I would have gone against it. Two years later, he would find himself on the right side of the law, and this would establish in his mind his true calling as a lawman. One night in October of 1905, while Frank was working as a ranch hand for the Carr Ranch, he overheard a conversation between the Pecos County Sheriff and his former deputy. Frank would relieve the boredom of nights spent on the ranch by listening to the local party telephone line. And when he heard the conversation about the horse thief heading his way, he couldn't restrain himself.
2: It's 1905, where telephones were fairly new. Rural telephones started to come in about 1900. But they were all on party lines, which young people today have no idea what a party line is. On this particular party line, the ranchers would all talk about, they'd all get together, so they would talk about the weather and the crops and the cattle and everything, and so Hamer's on the party line, and he hears the sheriff get on, and he's trying to reach his deputy, and a former deputy, that there's two horse thieves heading in Hamer's direction, and Hamer hears
0: it. I'll go get him, sheriff, he blurted out of pure impulse. Frank convinced the sheriff he was up to the task and he set out for what he knew was the only watering hole in the area before sunup. He took with him his six-shooter and his Winchester rifle. At dawn, the horse thief made a silhouette on the horizon, and Frank concealed himself in the brush and lay in wait. As the man dismounted, Frank drew his Winchester. You're under arrest, he bellowed with an authority that came from deep within him. Frank rode behind the man towards Fort Stockton, until Sheriff Dudley Barker met up with them on a horse buggy. He cuffed the thief, looked at Frank and said, you did a mighty fine job catching this man, Frank. How'd you like to be a Texas Ranger?
2: The sheriff tells Hamer, this is the second time you've helped me out. Have you ever thought of being a Texas Ranger? And Hamer's flabbergasted. I mean, most young boys in Texas dream of being a Texas Ranger, but Hamer said it never occurred to him. So this sheriff, who's actually a pretty famous former ranger himself, uh, writes a note to, to Captain John H. Rogers, who's one of the, if you name the four or five greatest ranger captains in the whole history of the rangers, he is right up there. They called him the praying captain. He carried a Bible in his saddlebags.
0: Sheriff Parker told him he'd take care of the formalities. And just like that, Frank was a brand new Ranger recruit. The following April he was sworn in as a Texas Ranger at the ripe age of 22. Frank had just stepped into the role he was born for, the one his whole life had been preparing him for. He took the Ranger oath as seriously as any other Ranger and he was soon to live up to the faith Sheriff Barker had shown in him, and then some. By the time Frank joined the Texas Rangers, they were revered by Anglo-Texans and famous worldwide they came to fame in the Mexican-American War, using their unique combat skills against forces in northern Mexico, and had morphed into a force responsible for a wide range of criminals, from lynch mobs, to bank robbers, to cattle rustlers, to Mexican revolutionaries. The Rangers were underpaid and undertrained, but Frank had a sharp wit he had learned from his father, and progressed as a ranger under the tutelage of John H. Rogers, Rogers was a man of deep integrity, faith, and grit, and Frank was drawn to him immediately. Frank learned the art of investigation, developed an understanding for the statutes of law, and how to give compelling testimony to put and keep criminals behind bars. To round off his first year as a Texas Ranger, Frank was part of a Ranger Force dispatched to Del Rio, Texas, in November of 1906. A man going by the alias A.R. Sibley had murdered two sheep ranchers, two days apart, and stolen over $10,000 in cash and livestock. His real name was Ed Putnam, a 30-year-old smuggler and ex-convict. After the murders, he had ended up in a brothel in Del Rio, where the rangers descended upon after a short manhunt. Arriving in the evening, they shouted for the women to depart the brothel. They trained every gun on every window and door of the place, ordering Putnam to give himself up. Ed Putnam refused, so the rangers unleashed a volley of fire at the building. Frank Hamer had taken up a good position at the back of the house, where he had an excellent view of the windows. Holding his Winchester Model 1894 steady, Frank didn't fire. He carefully watched the closed curtains of the rear windows for any movement. The curtain had moved a few times, but Frank held his nerve, waiting for a clear sight of Putnam. Then the shape of a revolver jutted out from the curtain. Frank, all in one motion, drew a bead on it and pulled the trigger. One bullet from the rifle of Frank Hamer and Ed Putnam was dead, hit just below the left eye.
2: As far as we know, that's the only shot Hamer fired in this entire uh, incident that went on for a half hour, hour or so, and his only shot put it in to the guy and Hamer uh, wasn't one to fire uh, recklessly, and he wouldn't fire unless he had a clear shot. He was very it wasn't the best shot in Texas. Uh, I've got uh, accounts of him uh, per, uh, shooting in some shooting competitions in the 1920s, uh, and he doesn't come in first. He comes in like second, third, fourth. You know, so so much for him being the best shot in Texas, but. There's a huge difference between shooting at a paper target and shooting at a guy who's got a gun at you and is firing at you, and that's what he excelled at.
0: Captain Rogers gave Frank the Colt 34 revolver taken from Putnam's body as a memento for his first gunfight as a Ranger. Frank's first year as a Ranger had been an eventful one, and he had proven himself through his actions that he was cool under fire, dependable, and a deadly marksman.
2: Hamer was in a totally different society and a totally different era for law enforcement. In, you know, the current police staffing levels are about one to two officers per thousand population. You know, so a town, a city, you know, a small city of 100,000 has about 100 cops, 120, 130 cops, right? No community in America in the 19th century had a tax base large enough to support two police officers per thousand. A city of 20,000 might have three or four police officers full-time, maybe a few part-time officers. So Hamer is getting experience beyond anything that a modern American lawman would obtain.
0: The next few years of Frank's career would be marked by his involvement in the tinderbox of race relations in East Texas. By 1910, about 18% of the East Texas population was African American. During the first decade of the 20th century, over 100 blacks were lynched in the state. Sometimes a black man had committed a crime, and the townsmen enacted vigilante justice. Other times, and by no means a minority of the cases, innocent blacks either suspected of crimes or those simply in the wrong place at the wrong time were the target of these lynch mobs. For those lucky to escape the fate of lynching, the prevalent Jim Crow laws of the post-civil war south kept blacks firmly outside of the comforts and rights of common society. Frank had grown up to the west of this racial violence, but he was abruptly introduced to it in June of 1908
2: and in robert uh captain rogers case uh he believed that the rangers were endowed with this ability and this duty to protect anybody from uh, from unlawful violence and uh, i've even found a letter uh, written in 1905 from the head of the naacp in east texas writing to captain rogers and saying we need your help The Rangers have always been there to protect colored people. We need you again. And uh, these kinds of things you don't read in some of the new revisionist history because it doesn't fit people's modern perception that everybody back then was evil.
0: On June 14th in the city of Beaumont, A black man came upon a horrific scene a young white girl had been beaten raped and left unconscious the man saw another black man fleeing the scene and was brought into the police station as a material witness the local police found out all over the city in search of the suspect as did armed mobs with quick trigger fingers an innocent black man returning from a squirrel hunt was shot and killed by the mob and that night an angry group of men burned down several black homes and businesses in the area of the crime. The next morning police began a dragnet, arresting any black man who could have potentially committed the crime as a way to appease the out of control mob. Two men, Claude Golden and Matthew Fennell, were arrested. That evening Frank Hamer arrived by chance at the Beaumont train station. He was in route to testify for the rangers in a perjury case, but after witnessing the chaos on display from the night before, Frank sought out the sheriff and offered his assistance.
2: And so Hamer hears about all this, so he walks to the courthouse and he finds the sheriff and says, you know, I'm Private Hamer from Company D. Can I help? And the sheriff said, thank God, yes, we need your help. I'm hiding these two suspects in the barn of my own home. Uh, can you go there and guard them till this thing blows over? So Hamer goes into the barn.
0: At one point, one of the vigilantes entered the barn, and Frank and Laundrie sat in perfect silence with the two prisoners as the vigilantes searched for any sign of them. After he left, Frank knew they needed to get out of the city as soon as possible, but they couldn't risk a horse and buggy as it would generate too much noise and attention. So the four of them, along with a Beaumont detective, headed to the swamps east of the city. As the mob were tipped off to this, the men were forced to literally crawl on their hands and knees through the rattlesnake and alligator infested swamps. The mob passed within a few dozen yards of them, time and time again, but they managed to survive the night. By daybreak, the men made it four miles to a church in the town of Hamilton. Sheriff Laundrie then went back to Beaumont while Frank guarded the prisoners and secured passage on a train which stopped in Hamilton to pick the men up. By afternoon, the two prisoners were locked up in the Galveston Jail, perhaps the most relieved man ever to be behind bars. Adabel Hopkins, the rape victim, eventually came out of a coma and identified Claude Golden as the perpetrator, and he was subsequently charged and executed in February of 1909. Frank received praise from Captain Rogers for his actions in Beaumont, He said of Frank's performance, Ranger Hamer's presence of mind, coolness and courage on this occasion, as in all other like occasions, is indeed very commendable.
2: And and keep in mind, there were a number of incidents in that era where lawmen were, and, and one in particular, I believe it happened in Louisiana, where the sheriff tried to protect two black criminals from a lynch mob. They finally broke into the jail they lynched on the same tree, the two uh, criminals and their own sheriff. So this uh, protecting uh, somebody from a lynch mob could be very, very dangerous for the officer involved as well.
0: Frank would resign from his position as a Texas Ranger at the end of 1908. The Rangers were dramatically underpaid and Frank needed a higher wage to support his family. He accepted the position of Marshal of Navasota in Grimes County, Texas. His protection of African Americans would continue here. The famous blues singer and Navasota resident Man Lipscomb would comment,
2: "Boy, he cooled that town down. Poor color folks were scared to meet white folks on the street. There was no room for nobody but white folks to come down. Other people have said, "Well, how could Lipscomb, this uh, you know unheard of young black boy in Navasota, he's about." you know, 12, 13 at the time. How could he know this great guy who became the most famous Texas Ranger captain? Lipscomb knew things. Either he knew it of his own knowledge or he had the foresight to go into the Texas State Archives in the early 1960s, and that obviously didn't happen. This young Black boy knew Frank Hamer, knew him very well, and talked about how he protected the Black community in Navasota.
0: Over the next decade, Frank spent most of his time in Houston as a special officer and hunted down fugitives such as Matt Young, known as Mississippi Red. Young had shot Constable Edgar E. Igot while Iggitt attempted to arrest him for assaulting his wife. Frank and fellow special officer Sheriff Frank Hammond tracked Young to Louisiana and brought him back to Houston, securing the $250 reward. This would not be the last time Frank would hunt down wanted killers in the Bayou State. Frank had a mountain of trouble with the press in Houston during his time there. The Houston press in particular had it out for law enforcement, who they believed were too heavy-handed and too quick to pull the trigger. They set their sights squarely on Frank Hamer. After a number of over-the-top, exaggerated stories about Houston's special officers, Frank went down to the press office and left no doubt about his feelings on the paper's journalistic practices. The next one of you fellas I see on the street, I'm gonna smoke him off the earth. Frank made good on his threat no more than 24 hours later when he met a couple of Houston Press journalists while departing the Stratford Hotel. Frank approached them and punched H.C. Waters and pistol whipped his brother George. When George fled down the street to get away, Frank fired two shots into the air to scare him. Frank later went to the police station, where he was arrested and then released on bail. This was one of the lowest points in Frank's life. He had allowed the five month long feud and his temper to get the better of him. His usual cool under pressure had evaporated, and his emotions and insult to his pride overpowered the man who knew better. This was not who Frank was, but the consequences would be dire. Frank resigned and after the election of the new mayor of Houston the remaining special officers were immediately fired to appease the public outcry at the incident. Frank moved back to Navasota with his wife Molly, but he was unable to find work for some time. The couple divorced in late 1914 or early 1915. The cowboy police were now a thing of the past in Texas's big cities and men like Frank Hamer were becoming an unwelcome relic of the past, one that the modern world of the early 20th century had no use for. But a new age was about to emerge in the United States, and with it would bring a whole new level of crime and violence that would require the old-school Texas lawman to overcome. Prohibition went into effect in the United States with the passage of the Volstead Act on January 16, 1920. Fines for the manufacture and possession of alcohol were $1,000 and up to a year in prison for the first offense. The average salary in 1920 was a little over $3,000. But the simple fact was that prohibition did not have the intended result. Instead of ushering in a new era of sobriety and peace in American society, It only increased the appeal of alcohol.
2: Traditional thinking has been is that prohibition caused a surge in crime in the United States, that by outlawing something that had been legal for 200 years, it created a disrespect for law. And, you know, a lot of people would go to speakeasies, you'd have to knock on the door, they'd open a little sliding peephole, and you'd have to use a password to get in, you know. Uh, I think what's pretty clear, though, is that during Prohibition, it, it coincided with the rise of motorized gangs. And some of it had to do with the fact that a lot of these young men, that they had military experience, There's this line of thought that a lot of these young men, they faced machine guns in France and uh, artillery fire from the Germans, and they're not going to be afraid of their local beat cop with his little 38 caliber pistol.
0: Frank, never a drinking man, was offered a position as a federal prohibition agent, and in May of 1920, he resigned from the Rangers to begin work in San Antonio.
2: You know, Contrary to myth, he, he didn't join the Texas Rangers in 1906 and stay a Ranger up through the 30s. The Rangers were grossly underpaid. When he joined the Rangers, they only made $30 a month. And, and keep in mind that a typical police officer in Dallas or Houston made about $100 a month. So a police officer doing a far less dangerous job with much less independence and responsibility made more than three times what a ranger made. So uh, Hamer had a wife and children to support.
0: Prohibition made a way for two very dangerous ways for folks to make a living. Corruption and smuggling. Thomas Stevik was Hamer's first supervisor and he was as corrupt as they came. Stevik used his position to secure payoffs for overlooking moonshiners, bootleggers and even more violent criminals. When he inquired of Frank if he'd be interested in earning a bit of extra cash, he didn't realize that he had just asked one of the few men in prohibition enforcement that couldn't be persuaded to look the other way. Frank went along with it for a time to collect evidence, but when Stevik had Frank drive him out of the country, Frank knew it was a plot to ensure he kept quiet by any means necessary. But Frank simply stared Stevik dead in the eyes, daring him to make a move. And after the two arrived back in town, Frank brought Stevik to prison and he was jailed in charge for conspiracy to import, transport and sell liquor. But Stevik was well connected and only served two months in Leavenworth. The alcohol smuggling problem on the US-Mexico border had been greatly exacerbated by prohibition, with smugglers' profits increasing by some orders of magnitude for whiskey and tequila. Frank was sent to El Paso in 1921 to help quell the booze runners coming across the Rio Grande. He was soon in on the action. A few days after arriving in El Paso, or Hel Paso as it became known to the locals, Frank and the other dry agents spotted a suspected group of smugglers. When he ordered them to stop, the pair fired at the officers and took off in a high-speed vehicle, and the chase was on. Hamer and his posse gave chase, and they hit speeds of 60 miles per hour, winding around street corners and firing shots like the scene of an old gangster flick. Four shots hit the gas tank of the smuggler's vehicle, and the car lost control and hit a sidewalk. The occupants fled but one Manuel Asoyo was captured later and jailed on smuggling charges. Some 22 gallons of tequila were found in the vehicle. In May of 1921, Frank led one of the largest Texas Prohibition raids in history, when he and his men seized eight whiskey stills and hundreds of gallons of whiskey-making corn mash, which was fermented and then distilled into whiskey. The moonshining farmers were jailed just simple farming folks who had been enticed into the newfound gold mine of liquor production. In August of the same year, Frank charged two state legislators, Tom Brinkley and Homer Hendricks, with possession of liquor and impounded their vehicle. By this point, it was clear to everyone that prohibition had led to an incessant disrespect for law enforcement, and not just by common criminals. From farmers to politicians to everyday otherwise law-abiding citizens, The draw of alcohol and its outlawing made breaking the law more palatable than it had been prior. The slippery slope of this mindset and its hold on the American conscience would soon give birth to the scenes of gangsters shooting machine guns from car windows in America's biggest cities.
2: Prohibition, at least in Texas, caused a tremendous morale problem to law enforcement. It created a disrespect of law enforcement, a disrespect of laws. And I think it did encourage people uh, to look up to some of these outlaws. And you look at uh, Dillinger, a lot of people idolized John Dillinger. They thought he was a folk hero.
0: Frank resigned his post as a Prohibition officer in August of 1921 and accepted a position as Ranger Captain from Texas Governor Pat Neff. By this point at age 37 and a 16-year veteran of law enforcement, he was widely known in Texas as a top-notch lawman. Frank had been through many ups and downs. He had proven himself as a dead shot as a young ranger. He had proven his integrity and moral courage in protecting wanted African Americans in East Texas. But Frank had his flaws. He had posed for a photo with two other rangers while seated in the saddle above four dead Mexican bandits during the bandit war of 1915. And his involvement in the questionable killings of Mexicans during the Mexican revolution further tarnished his reputation to some. After his marriage to Gladys Johnson-Sims, he got involved in the violent Johnson-Sims feud and killed Guy McMeans in the Sweetwater gunfight. He had allowed his ego and his temper to control him when the press gave him a hard time for his heavy-handed tactics in Houston. But his role in quelling the Ku Klux Klan was something that deserves high praise. The two things Frank hated more than anything were bullies and lawbreakers, and in the Klan he found both, In 1922, there were 17 lynchings in Texas. By 1925, there were none, in no small part thanks to Frank's leadership of the Rangers. In all of this, Frank learned valuable lessons. He had learned that two things clouded his otherwise unflappable judgment, his loyalty to his family, friends, and fellow lawmen, and his personal honor and pride. And after becoming a Ranger captain at last, Frank knew that now his responsibility was to ensure the longevity of the Rangers and to keep them out of activities that would land them in bad press reports. He would play a pivotal role in ushering the Rangers into the modern era of law enforcement over the next decade. And he would soon be on a collision course with a new kind of lawlessness that would elevate him from a respected Texas lawman to an American legend.
1: This episode of Virtuous Men was written and recorded by Jamie Adams, and edited by Scott Einig. Hamer quotations read by John Gallagher, and Mance Lipscomb quotation read by Anthony Smith. A very special thanks to author John Boesnecker for his insight on the life of Frank Hamer. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. Tune in next time for part two, the manhood that would cement Frank Hamer's place in history.